episode 56, Modern Ledger Art. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a June 4th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. This podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. American Indian art and artifacts have fascinated non-native people since Columbus first stepped off the boat in the New World. Unfortunately, this fascination can sometimes lead to looting. Join curator Laura Van Orsdale and me as we discuss the contemporary ledger art produced by a Caddo Indian woman in Topeka, Kansas. She was so disturbed by the theft of her tribal burial sites, she decided to do something about it. Later, we lighten up a bit when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. This week, we connect the Sage of Emporia to the premier alternative rock band, Weezer. Did White secretly sneak onto the set of rock videos and insert himself into the background? In a way, yes. But first, modern ledger art. Today we're going to talk about a piece of artwork produced by a Kansas artist, and it is entitled Caddo Women Taking Repatriation of Ghost Dance Pole into Their Own Hands. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it is. Um, the artist is a female artist. Her name was Dolores Purdy Corcoran, and she completed this color pencil drawing in 2007. Uh, Laura, can you tell us a little bit about the artist? Sure. Well, along with living in Topeka, Corcoran is also a member of the Cato Nation of Oklahoma. Now, she's formally trained in watercolor, but um, she, Dolores has become increasingly interested in her Native American heritage and um, the ledger art tradition. Now, recently, we had a chance to sit down and talk to Corcoran about her artwork, and this is what she had to say about her background. Well, live here in Topeka now, where I, uh, my father was in the Air Force. So I was born in Hampton, Virginia. I've lived in Puerto Rico. I've lived in all sorts of places. So I guess the longest I've lived is here in Topeka and that was when I went into the seventh grade. Actually, I've been dabbling with it all my life, but once the kids went to college, I could, I had time on my own. I thought, you know, I'm gonna go for it. So I started messing around with it about 97, 98, didn't really do any shows. In about 2000, I just like, okay, let's go for it. So I started applying to different shows. Well, my dad, um, he's Caddo and also part Winnebago. Uh, it's just one of these things I've always enjoyed listening to all the stories. You know, when you go back to Oklahoma, you know, we've got a lot of family that live in Oklahoma, and we'd listen to all the stories and stuff, and it was just something that just really interested me. You know, I really liked hearing about everything that they've done and all the different, and you know, you go to, as a little kid, I'd go to some dances. And then I really didn't go to any for quite a while until, um, you know, about 10 years ago, I started going again. Corcoran, as you said, is a member of the Cato Indian Nation. Uh, who were the Cato? Well, the Cato um, were a southeastern tribe. Uh, they were known for their wonderful craftsmanship in pots and they're also um, their burial mound culture they they did do burial mounds um, construction uh, they were 
they were traditionally located in Texas, East Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas, um, although they're now in Oklahoma, of course, um, as are many tribes located there now. But you were, like you were telling me earlier, they did a lot of trading, and, right. Right. and you'll find... There are Cato, um, fragments of Cato pots that have been found at different archaeological sites in Kansas. So, yeah. you know, they were at least trading this far, probably even further. Um, a lot of those trade groups went, trade routes went very far. So. Well, Corcoran told us a little bit about the story behind this specific drawing, and here's what she had to say. This is a contemporary work done in historical fashion dealing with a contemporary issue, which is, well... Basically, the Caddo people are in consultation with the archaeologists and anthropologists because the pot hunters are destroying and disturbing the mound sites and the different grave sites. Okay, Laura, obviously this piece is dealing with some pretty serious issues. Can you briefly describe the piece and explain what Corcoran meant when she spoke about the contemporary problem? Sure. Well, um, this piece depicts five female Native American figures, and they're riding away um, on horses carrying a large pole, which is the ghost dance pole. Now, these um, female riders are being chased by three figures who are wearing what look to be 19th century cavalry uniforms, and those um, those three figures depict looters and um, artifact thieves. Now, the contemporary problem she's addressing here is looting, and um, looting of grave sites, looting of uh, archaeological sites is go goes on all over the world. It um, happens many places, but here in the United States, the, one of the groups that is most um, readily affected by it is Native Americans, because a lot of Native American artifacts are in these you know, burial sites, and they're very desirable for collectors. Now, for the Cato people in, in particular, they were mound builders, which they would build mounds, burial mounds, and there would be pots, um, masks found in these mounds, and collectors know that. And so looters can go in and dig those up and then sell them to private collectors or in the past to museums as well and make a lot of money on the black market. So this work, um, she's addressing this issue of all this looting um, that's been taking place and Native people trying to stop um, the looting and trying to take that, uh, get back artifacts that were stolen from them. And you, you talked about, you, you said this has been going on, and this has been going on for right. years, right? Yeah, decades here. And it's come to the point now where this, uh, this piece actually talks about, you know, well, I guess it, it talks not just about the initial looting, but about mm -hmm. acts or efforts since then to Correct. reclaim some of that stuff. Um, and actually, the federal government, they took steps to counter the looting and, and tried to find ways to return looted artifacts to tribes when it passed what was called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, mm -hmm. which for short is NAGPRA. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, Laura, what is NAGPRA? Well, as you said, NAGPRA is a law. Um, the federal government has had, there have been laws on the books for um, decades about you know, not stealing, not looting. In fact, you're not, uh, since the early 19th century, there's a law that you are not supposed to pick up um, pot shards or any artifact, any archaeological artifact from federal land. So, you know, if you're out at Mesa Verde, don't pick up any pot shards because it's a federal offense. Mm -hmm. um, but... Yeah, and even if you're if you're in, like, Yellowstone, right, you, you, can't, right. you can't pick up arrowheads. Any federal land, exactly. Right. right. So um, it's, it is illegal to do that. Well, NAGPRA goes one step further than the, these initial laws in that it actually provides for a way for... Um, for these objects to be returned to the tribe of origin. Uh, so if you have an object that is a, a human remains, 
uh, fall under this law, a uh, ceremonial artifact or an art artifact of cultural patrimony, and you're an, a museum or an agency that receives federal money, you have to follow the steps lined out in NAGPRA to return, attempt to return those objects to the right group. Ceremonial artifact and uh, human remains; those are pretty easy to understand. Object of cultural patrimony. That's what is that? Ambiguous term. Right. Well, I, an example would be um, for us as American citizens, an object of cultural patrimony for us would be the Declaration of Independence. It's an object that is so important to um, our culture and our way of life that it cannot belong to just one person. It belongs to all of us. So you can own it. I'm sorry. I know you're disappointed. I know. <laughs> but um, we all own it together. So that's an example of an object of cultural patrimony. Corcoran mentioned this piece uh, was done in a traditional style. And by that, I think she meant ledger art or ledger art style. Okay. Laura, what is ledger art? Well, ledger art is a style of art that uses um, primarily pictographs, a lot of simple drawings. And it's done using, often using just colored pencils or watercolors on regular common paper. Um, a lot of the times it was done on the large ledgers like you see here in this example. Um, and let's see, Cochran spoke a little bit about the origins of ledger art. There is a background on ledger art, and uh, it really, uh, the most famous arena for this art medium began really in Fort Marion, Florida, which is in St. Augustine, Florida. In 1875, there were 72 influential chiefs and warriors from the Kiowa, Arapaho, Caddo, and Comanche Nation that were arrested in Oklahoma and sent to Florida. Well, while they were there, the Floridians would come in to see the prisoners because they didn't have any Native people down there and they wanted to come in and see them. And so, as a way to earn some money, they started drawing scenes depicting what it was like back home, some of the ceremonies, some of the different things they would do at home, and sell these to these visitors. And this income generated, they would send back home to their families. So, it's something that has just kind of continued to evolve. Now, Corcoran also pointed out that her use of ledger art is a little different than the traditional ledger art of the past. Ledger art is also warrior art. Women do not usually do ledger art. Um, I'm one of five women that I know of that does ledger art. In the drawing, the central female figures are repatriating the ghost dance pole. What is the ghost dance pole? Well, um, Merle, actually you probably might be more familiar with uh, ghost dance shirts. Um, now, ghost dance shirts were shirts that were worn as part of a religious um, revival movement among Native American groups in the late 19th century, by 1890s. Um, and this, these shirts, and participating in the ceremony, um, a lot of the people who did this believed that these shirts would protect them from bullets so they would not be killed when they went to fight. Um, against, you know, the cavalry soldiers. And this ghost dance pole is actually like a 12-foot pole. It's made out of cedar that actually, it actually exists. Um, this is a pattern after uh, an actual pole that's in the Sam Houston Museum in Texas right now. Uh, and it is, it has been repatriated to the Cato Nation, but the museum is holding it for them until they can find, they have a storage facility to take care of it properly. Um, but this, uh, she, the artist selected this to illustrate this image, this ghost dance pole, because it's like the primo artifact, um, something so amazing that pot, you know pot hunters and looters would would love to have. But the you know Native Americans, or the Cato people, are trying to preserve that for themselves because it's really important to their culture. Mm -hmm. 
And the ghost dance, or the ghost dance pole and the ghost dance, they're kind of famous. And you were talking earlier, I mean, it's linked to some bigger stuff, some bigger, well, I I shouldn't say bigger, but it's linked to some other significant events that happened. All right, well, ghost dance really um, was sort of one of the last major resistance movements um, in Native American culture before uh, the end of the 19th century. Um, Wounded Knee in 1890, I believe, is when that took place. And that was sort of I mean, brought about because of this ghost dance, because it really frightened a lot of the, you know, the army, and they weren't sure what was going on. So it's pretty important in the history of Plains, um, Native American culture in the Plains. As you said, ledger art is usually done on some type of common piece of paper, which, you know, when the tradition started, um, the the original artists were using just whatever paper they could find. Right. So it usually comes on some type of common piece of paper. Sometimes it looks a little bit like Big Chief tablet paper. Uh, what did Corcoran use for her ledger art? Well, it wasn't Big Chief <laughs> Big Chief tablet paper, that's for sure. Um, Corcoran actually used an Osage County, Kansas parole records ledger, which I find fascinating since I live in Osage County. <laughs> Um, but it's actually historic paper. It comes from the 18, late 1800s, um, 1870s, 1890s. And for Corcoran, the selection of the parole records was really significant to the work, and she explains why here. The whole idea is we kind of want to arrest those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be nice if we could just, like, run them right on into jail. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I've heard stories. I, I read an article one time about some guy in Texas who was bragging that he put four kids to college by digging up cattle graves. And you're like, oh, good. Well, I'm glad they got a college education out of it. (laughs) Well, Laura, um, I just want to let our podcasting uh, audience know that, sadly, this will be your last podcast with us. Um, This is your last day at the Kansas Historical Society. And uh, you'll be be going home to take care of some newborn twins, (laughs) correct? That's right. That is true. Well, Laura, we are glad that we uh, had the opportunity to interview you about the Corcoran artwork and about many other pieces in the past. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's been very enjoyable. All right. Well, Laura, good luck, and thank you. Thank you. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and Exhibits Technician Morgan Shortle. Hello. Hello, ladies. Uh, We'll get to today's challenge in a minute, but first I thought we would read some feedback from one of our listeners. Um, And it relates to last week's challenge, which was to connect William Allen White to the atom bomb. Morgan, could you read the solution? Sure. Teresa from Topeka wrote, I connected William Allen White with the bomb through his son. Robert Oppenheimer and William Lindsay went to school together at Harvard, and Bill later inscribed a couple of his books as gifts to Oppenheimer. So the father of the bomb went to school with the son of an editor who was the bomb. (laughs) The B-29 Super Fortress William Allen White was also stationed on Tanian Island with its brother B-29s Enola Gay and Boxcar, which dropped the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Wow, so that's interesting. One of the alternate planes to deliver um, the atom bomb was actually the William Allen White. That is pretty... Pretty amazing. And today, as a special treat, we are connecting William Allen White to Weezer, an American alternative geek rock band from Los Angeles. And I'll just give you a little general background. And ladies, feel free to jump in with any little anecdotal, because I know uh, this seemed to be a pivotal uh, band in our college years. So 
I'm guessing you guys have some anecdotal information. Okay, so the band, it's actually a four-member band. It was formed in 1992. Um, their first major success came in 1994 with the release of the self-titled album that is more commonly known as the Blue Album. Uh, can you guys name some of the more popular songs on that album? <laughs> The Sweater Song. That's correct. Buddy Holly. Very good, very good. In 2003, the, a- the uh, album was ranked number 297, I guess that's pretty good, on Rolling Stones <laughs> Magazine's list of 500 greatest albums of all time. So it really is a must-own. Their frontman, Rivers Cuomo, is quite interesting. He was raised in a Hindu commune, um, and according to his mother, the name Rivers uh, was given to him because he was born between the East and Hudson Rivers in Manhattan, which I'm not sure what that says about his brother's name, which is Leaves. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he was born in a treehouse. <laughs> I don't know. And you had some uh, theories about um, Rivers Cuomo's patterns when the band goes on hiatus. Yeah, he likes to go to Harvard and get another degree. <laughs> yeah. He's, I think he's he goes, pretty uh, pretty intelligent. Yeah. We'll find that out a little later with my uh, solution. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, okay, so I'll do my solutions. I'll do my solutions first. I actually have two, um, so I'll start off. Rivers Cuomo, who is the front man for Weezer, he attended a school named Edwin Oscar Smith High School in Store, Connecticut. Uh, a man named Tim Page, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning music critic for the Washington Post, also attended E.O. Smith High School. Um, he, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, um, for what the board called his lucid and illuminating music criticism. Fascinating. Well, as we all know, in 1923, William Allen White also won a Pulitzer Prize for his editorial to an anxious friend. So there you have it. There's Cuomo to E.O. Smith High to Tim Page to William Allen White. My second one, okay, Weezer is commonly considered part of the geek rock genre. I know you guys you guys are familiar <laughs> with geek rock, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, so the genre often includes the heavy use of synthesizers, that makes sense, harmonic vocals, and lyrics that often relate to comic books, video games, science fiction, and fantasy. Are you guys geek rock fans? Apparently. <laughs> I had no idea you were into sci- you were into comic books and science fiction. Well, I don't commonly associate those with geek rock, but that's okay. Another <laughs> prominent member of this genre is the 1982 New York-based band They Might Be Giants. You might recognize their song Boss of Me, uh, which was used in the introduction to the Fox television series Malcolm in the Middle. Interestingly enough, starting in the 1980s, the alternative geek rock group They Might Be Giants used large cardboard cutouts of William Allen White's face during many of their concerts, as well as in their video, Don't Let's Start. So if you go to YouTube and you watch the video, you will literally see giant heads of William Allen White dancing around in the background. (laughs) Which is kind of cool, a little trippy. It's a little bizarre. (laughs) And um, I can't really find, I mean, I went to their website, I can't really find why it is they are, why they use William Allen White heads in their video. Well, and there's also some quotes that indicate that for a while they had no idea who he was. He was just a guy from an encyclopedia. (laughs) And then later on, I think they, you know, looked into it. Maybe they found out that it was William Allen White and who he was, but still doesn't make much sense why it's in the video. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I guess that's geek rock for you. Yeah. All right, Nikayla, what's your solution? Well, my solution, as I alluded to before, uh, starts out with Rivers Cuomo, the lead singer of Weezer. 
Um, he, as we mentioned, attended Harvard, and in 2006, he was named a member of Phi Beta Kappa, which is an academic honor society recognizing excellence in liberal arts and sciences for college undergraduates. Nerds. Nerds, geeks. yeah. Geeks, hence geek rock, yeah. Um, also a member of Phi Beta Kappa was Teddy Roosevelt. He was, wow. He was made a part of Phi Beta Kappa in 1880, also for attending Harvard. And, of course, as we know, William Allen White and Teddy Roosevelt were best friends forever. And also, um, for people who listened to our last podcast, they know that um, William Allen White knew Taft. Taft was also a member of Phi Beta Kappa. And who else? I believe Ashley Judd. (laughs) Ashley Judd, yeah. (laughs) Who would have thought? You look at the list, and, you know, she's a smart lady, but it's like world leaders, and then there's Ashley Judd. You know, I bet if if, uh, Weezer would have been around the time of Teddy Roosevelt, I bet he would have been a Weezer fan. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure they would have done a song about the Bull Moose Party. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So quite impressive. So how many degrees is that? Um, That's like, let's see. Not that it really matters. One, two, three, three or four. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm impressed that we uh, were pretty much able to do it in four or less degrees from WAW to Weezer. Well, I got to tell you, earlier this morning, I didn't think it was possible. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Morgan, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. For the next challenge, we want you to visit Jack, Janet, Chrissy, and the Ropers when you connect William Allen White to the ABC sitcom Three's Company. <laughs> I'm really excited about this one because uh, I kind of just pulled it out of the air, and I think I'm I think there's really no way you can do it. But uh, I also thought that was Weezer, and it ended up being fairly easy. So anyway, if you think you can connect William Allen White to Mr. Furley, send us an email at podcast at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. If you want to destroy my sweater, that concludes episode 56, Modern Ledger Art. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr commemorates Flag Day by examining two Civil War flags. Kansas boys carried these flags into battles that took place over 1,000 miles from Virginia. Recently unrolled and conserved, these flags haven't been viewed in over 100 years. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. It's bad.